2: 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
3: Hey guys, ready or not, 2024 is here and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election.
4: We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it just means the absolute world to have your support. But enough with that. Let's get to the show.
5: Good morning and welcome to Breaking Points. It's 2024. Crystal, happy new year.
3: Happy New Year. I can't say that I feel great about what's coming at us in 2024, but ready or not, here we go. Um, And we do have a lot to talk about. In the show this morning, some major things unfolding in Israel, a huge court decision that could trigger a constitutional crisis. And this comes as they've actually announced they are recalling some troops from Gaza. So we will tell you what all of that means. We also have major attacks in Ukraine as the West could be laying the groundwork to potentially try to come to some sort of negotiated solution there since things are not going particularly well. We have another state that is trying to kick Trump off of the ballot. And obviously, look, the Iowa caucuses are in weeks, which is absolutely insane to me. So things are coming down to the wire here. We've got Biden getting some dire poll numbers from MSNBC, of all places, and uh, Sagar making a little bit of news with his Tucker Carlson interview. Tucker coming after Ben Shapiro. So I'm actually really interested, Emily, to get your thoughts on all of that. Because as I was saying to you, I don't really have a dog in that fight.
5: Girl shows are fun, but Sagar really did do the impossible and made news over the holiday break. <laughs> <laughs> it took a lot, but he did it.
3: People were very, very interested in that interview. So we will show you uh, that and talk a little bit about all of the fallout. But first, let's start with what is going on in Israel. put this up on the screen. This is a huge development. The Israeli military announcing a partial drawdown. This is the headline from the New York Times. Israel says it will pull several brigades from the Gaza Strip. Let me just read you a little bit of this report. The Israeli military announced on Monday, it will begin withdrawing several thousand troops from Gaza, at least temporarily, in what would be the most significant publicly announced pullback since the war began. They cited a growing toll on the Israeli economy. I'm gonna tell you a little bit more about that in a minute. Following nearly three months of wartime mobilization, Daniel Hagari, the Israeli military spokesman, emphasized the move to demobilize some soldiers, did not indicate any compromise on Israel's intention to continue fighting, and he did not mention the American request to scale back. He indicated some will be called back to service in the coming year. Still, the fighting remains intense across Gaza, And uh, some of the details here, they say reservists from at least two brigades will be sent home this week and three brigades will be taken back for training. They vary in size, uh, up to roughly 4,000 troops per brigade. This Israeli military does not disclose how many troops it has deployed in Gaza. So hard to say exactly what this means in the grand scheme of things could be shifting to another phase. Something we've looked at here before on the show is just how, you know, what huge cost this war is imposing on the Israeli economy. Of course, it's nothing compared to the suffering that Gazans are experiencing. But um, we know in terms of their stated goal of destroying Hamas, even by their own very rosy estimates of, they say they've killed roughly 8,000 Hamas fighters. Well, Hamas had a fighting force of roughly 30,000 people. And we know they haven't announced that they've been able to take out any of their top targets in terms of Hamas leadership. So they are nowhere close to their stated goal, which always seemed you know, to many analysts to be completely impossible, of taking out Hamas and destroying Hamas completely. Um, and we do know also on the ground Hamas continues to release their propaganda fighting videos and they continue to have the ability to shoot rockets into Israel. So they are not, you know, they're not in any kind of uh, notable disarray. Let's go ahead and put this up on the screen. This is the latest Hamas propaganda fighting video that you can see. Um, They're using a a tunnel here. They see a tank. Um, They're able to put this explosive on uh, the tank and, uh, and they've got their sort of trademark little red arrow there showing their target and uh, putting this explosive device onto the tank, and then you're about to see it detonate. So in any case, intense fighting going on. They have been able to exact some casualties from the Israeli military. And you also have, as I was mentioning, major economic pressure on Israel. Part of that comes from the uh, Houthis' ability to hold up shipping in the Red Sea. We're gonna talk a little bit more of that in a minute. But put this Washington Post uh, report up on the screen, and then, Emily, I wanna get your reaction. We've got uh, a report saying that gross domestic product is going to fall from 3% growth to 1% in 2024. That may sound like not a lot, but that is actually really significant. Huge impact on Israel's high-tech sector. Does um, many of the individuals who have been called up uh, to, you know, who are in the reserve forces who have been called up, work in the high-tech sector um not only are they paying for those reservists the bombs and the bullets they're also supporting 200,000 evacuees who have been displaced from Israeli villages um they're being housed they're being fed in hotels all at government expense you have tourism which has completely flatlined tel aviv beaches and the old city in jerusalem bereft of foreigners christmas celebrations in bethlehem in the occupied west bank were canceled construction which is very dependent on palestinian labor Um, That has all come to a near halt. They've suspended the work permits of more than 100,000 Palestinians. So the sort of labor force that does a lot of the jobs that um, Israeli citizens don't want to do is uh, not being permitted to come in. So those industries have really taken a huge hit. And economists have estimated the war has cost the government about $18 billion. That's about $220 million a day. So Emily, that's part of what they're citing in their decision to announce this partial drawdown.
5: Yeah, and I think it's also worth remembering that the Biden administration for the last month or so has been anticipating publicly or or saying that it's uh, best goal for Israel in the new year is exactly what the New York Times headline that you read from essentially said is a a, a scaling back of the invasion, if not, you know, indefinite pause of the invasion. That's basically exactly what Joe Biden, uh, what we were hearing in press reports, what Joe Biden had been telling Netanyahu behind the scenes is that uh, the timeline is that as soon as the new year rolls around, this invasion of Gaza should be scaled back significantly. So I think it's worth remembering that and also uh, worth remembering the political pressures on Netanyahu at home, I think, get papered over in domestic American press. Uh, He has this wide spectrum Of pressures uh, from people within his own government, from members of the public. And Crystal, we're actually about to talk about some of the political reality that Netanyahu faces domestically uh, when it comes to the legal landscape in Israel. The economic points are so, so well taken. That's another thing. It's easy to forget how disruptive. Uh, this the operation has been since October seventh to the daily lives of thousands and thousands of Israelis and how disruptive it has been to the entire country. So the pressures on Netanyahu are just immense. So it's not at all surprising uh, that Israel made this decision. But to your point, we're going to see what it actually means over the course of you know the next couple of days and then you know into the future as well.
3: Yeah, that's a really important point. Just because they are drawing down some number of troops does not mean that the results will be any less brutal and deadly for um, Palestinians in Gaza, because we know that the air assault, the bombardment that they've faced, which has now completely destroyed northern Gaza, I mean, it's completely uninhabitable. You know, there's barely any civilian infrastructure left, houses, apartment buildings, schools, hospitals, etc., and the South is not much better off. This has also been one of the most deadly periods, actually, in Israel's assault on Gaza. So the fact that they're withdrawing troops doesn't necessarily mean that the results are gonna be any less brutal for Palestinians who, and we're gonna talk about this in a little bit more, um, half of whom are now facing starvation Conditions, But uh, to the, your point, Emily, about the uh, incredible pressures facing Netanyahu and Israeli society, which frankly is in uh, sort of chaos and disarray, put this up on the screen. So the judicial reform that critics call a judicial coup that Netanyahu and his uh, governing coalition had pushed through has now been struck down by the Supreme Court. Now, this was all about the sort of um, balance of powers between the judicial branch and the uh, legislative branch led, of course, by Netanyahu and the Likud party. And um, they attempted to uh, undercut some of the judiciary's power and the Supreme Court's power in particular, the Supreme Court now saying, no, we don't accept that and striking it down in a narrow decision. Let me go ahead and read you a little bit of this report so you can get a sense of the crisis. They say in a momentous ruling that could ignite a constitutional crisis, Israel's Supreme Court on Monday struck down a law passed by Bibi Netanyahu's right-wing government that was meant to limit the court's own powers by a majority of eight judges to seven. likely to rekindle the grave domestic situation that began a year ago over the government's judicial overhaul plan, which sparked mass protests that brought the country to a near standstill at times, even as Israel is at war in Gaza. You have um, the Likud party calling the Supreme Court's decision in opposition to the nation's desire for unity, especially in a time of war. And then you have uh, parliamentary opposition leader, Yair Lapid, hailing the court for, quote, faithfully fulfilling its duty to protect the people of Israel. And the reason that this is really tied into both October 7th and this war effort is, I mean, Netanyahu has almost no support in the country at this point, not on the right, not on the quote-unquote left liberal anywhere. Um, And part of that comes from a sense that by pushing through these reforms, which were incredibly divisive and also meant to attempt to get him off the hook for corruption charges that he was facing, that they really lost sight of the security situation. You know, you had um troops who were moved from that area near Gaza that was most aggressively attacked on October 7th to uh the West Bank or near the West Bank uh, to sort of placate his far-right uh coalition partners. You have this uh, list of security failures. There was just a big New York Times expose, actually, on how even on the day of October 7th, the IDF was in complete disarray, leaving ordinary people to try to, to fend for themselves for hours and hours and hours. And the sense was that this judicial reform, which really tore the country in two, had distracted them to the extent that not only did they fail to anticipate October 7th, but they were then unable to respond on that day. So that's part of how this is all tied in. And also, of course, Emily, you know, really uh, calls into question the ability to maintain any sort of unity across the country and among the citizenry because this is such an incredibly divisive, uh, difficult issue.
5: Yeah, another thing that I think has been you know underplayed in the Western press is the amount of criticism that Netanyahu has faced. Uh, and, and even, you know, sort of from the coalition, even from f- sort of the, the far right members, um, allies at points with Benjamin Netanyahu uh, since October 7th. It has been brutal. Uh, hostages that have been returned, the families of hostages who have not been returned. Um, There have been really bad leaks out of some meetings that Netanyahu has had. There's been immense displeasure that he hasn't met with everyone. I think one meeting a few weeks back was capped at 15 people, something like that. And so he wasn't able at that particular meeting to confer with all of the families. And all of this has created a really bad domestic picture for Netanyahu. And to your point, this was passed by parliament in July, supported by people like Netanyahu. Israel does have a very, very powerful court. Um, And reading from an old New York Times article before October 7th, they'd say supporters of the measure, which parliament, this is at the time, is expected to vote on next Monday, presented as a boon for democracy, a modest limit on the ways in which an elected government can be stymied by unelected judges who will in any case still have other tools to overrule ministers. So that's what this was essentially about, that the court could say, nope, Um, on this uh, definition of reasonableness, uh, we, we will not rubber stamp this ministerial appointment. And for for some people, they say that's reducing judicial oversight for Netanyahu and his allies. They say, uh, actually, that's really important to kind of push back on this idea of unelected judges. And that entire debate was roiling the country. There were mass protests that you mentioned, Crystal, and people certainly remember. Uh, and, and so this is a really, really difficult domestic uh, situation for, for Netanyahu. It is not, a, there, there is not a united front at home or even among his allies abroad uh, about what Israel should do going forward. And it raises massive questions um, about, you know, people talk about, and and myself included, what does eradicating Hamas mean? What kind of comes up in that vacuum? You know, say the 8,000 number is accurate. So you've gotten rid of a third of Hamas fighters um, and a a whole lot of the infrastructure. Okay, so what uh, what, what is Israel going to do? Um, in for future steps in the war, uh, Netanyahu or not, what is the plan? Uh, what does is the Israeli government look like uh, in the next two years, let alone five years? These things are really unsettled right now.
3: Absolutely, and as much as the uh, country has really been torn into by these uh, judicial, you know, reforms or judicial coup attempt to strip power from the judiciary. You know, in other areas, the country is very unified. And actually, guys, if you could put the last element in this block up, a eleven, um, a poll that shows overwhelmingly uh, Jewish Israelis in particular, they say they're not concerned about Palestinian suffering. They don't. They don't think that Palestinian suffering should be considered in terms of planning the war effort, 81% of Israeli Jews say it should either be, you know, not considered at all or considered very little. Total opposite view from Arab Israelis have the complete counterpoint, um, Emily, appropriate (laughs) counterpoint view there. Um, And we've also seen polling, of course, about uh, overwhelmingly, especially Jewish Israelis, they feel that the IDF, if anything, hasn't been brutal enough. 1.8% said that they had gone too far in their assault on Gaza. There was a huge number in favor of uh, basically the ethnic cleansing plan, which we're going to get to as well, of uh, quote unquote voluntary migration of Palestinians out of Gaza. Now, how voluntary is a migration when your home has been bombed and your children are being starved to death? We'll talk about that again in just a moment. But Huge, huge developments. And just to give people a sense, lastly, on this uh, judicial reform and striking down that uh, that law by the Supreme Court of how fraught this has been, there's actually a lawmaker, a former cabinet member from Netanyahu's Likud party, uh, Gallet Distel at Baryan, sorry, I'm sure I said that name wrong, who just apologized for being involved in this. They said, I'm here sitting and telling you, the democratic secular public, I sinned against you. I caused pain for you. I caused you to fear for your lives, and I am sorry for this. So it shows you how high emotions are running. That even someone who was involved in this um, in this attempt said that they sinned against the liberal secular public. Uh, let's go ahead and move on to another incredibly important part of this story, which you know it's uh, we just cannot lose sight of, which is the risk of a larger escalation into a regional war and of the way that our own uh, troops have become directly implicated in what Israel is doing here. Put this up on the screen. So the U.S. just killed 10 Houthis and uh, they sunk three ships after a Houthi Red Sea attack. U.S. helicopters repelled an attack by Iran-backed Houthi militants on a Maersk container vessel in the Red Sea. Is that how you say that? I don't really know. Anyway, it's a large shipping company in the Red Sea, sinking three ships and killing 10 militants, according to accounts by Americans and Houthi officials on Sunday. The naval battle occurred around 3.30 GMT on Sunday as the attackers sought to board the Singapore flagged Maersk, Hengju, Maersk, and U.S. said, Helicopters from the USS Eisenhower and USS Gravely joined the ship's security team in repelling the attackers after receiving a distress call. Interestingly, um, the USS Eisenhower is actually uh, withdrawing from the region. It's been there from the beginning. As an interesting note. I believe it's the Eisenhower that's withdrawing. This comes as, put this up on the screen, an Iranian warship has now entered the Red Sea. Uh, Iran's Albor's warship entered the Red Sea. A semi-official news agency reported on Monday at a time of soaring tensions on the key shipping route amid the Israel-Hamas war and attacks on vessels by forces allied to Tehran. And the UK looking to get more involved in these attacks on Houthis and even floating direct attacks, airstrikes on Houthi rebels. Put this next one up. Um, Britain is reportedly considering airstrikes on Houthi rebels after the U.S. said its Navy sank three boats that had been targeting a container ship in the Red Sea. Grant Shops, the defense secretary, said the government would not hesitate to take direct action to prevent further attacks amid reports the U.K. and U.S. are preparing a joint statement to issue a final warning to the Yemeni group. Obviously, this is massively significant. Um, We are directly engaging and killing Houthi militants We have put together this uh, attempt at a coalition so that we aren't the only ones who are being attacked or facing these risks. But Emily, all of our allies effectively have been extraordinarily reluctant. The coalition, such as it is, is quite lackluster, includes next to no Arab allies, there were a number of countries who didn't want to publicly be associated with it. Uh, so there's you know, the level of just the humiliation of the US trying to pull something together here that ended up not going very well and continues to not go very well. You still have uh, shipping basically blocked through this uh, area of the Red Sea, which is massively significant for global trade and is applying pressure to global commerce, but in particular, Israeli commerce but then you also have just the incredible risk of this blowing up into something much larger than it already is and dragging us much more directly into these sorts of engagements with so many of our troops still in the region where huge risks that abound
5: so many of our troops still in the region, in the region, just completely fanned out across the Middle East in ways that have been highlighted uh, over the past couple of months. You know, people didn't know that we had troops as broadly uh, and prolifically as we do across the region, across the region, and as many troops as we do across the region. But it's always worth keeping in mind because it underscores, to your point what a powder keg this situation is. And we're going to talk about Ukraine uh, shortly, but I think it is really worth remembering that this is happening on a split screen, uh, that you know, one of the ter- most terrifying things after October 7th and since uh, has been the way that China, Russia, all of these, these different sort of emerging blocks have responded to different threats and, and different events that have cropped up over the course of the post-October 7th Uh, Conflict. And that is really, really scary stuff. And what we are seeing. Uh, in the the naval sector here is a lack of American control a lack of uh control among it to your point you know our our friends uh people who are at least are, are countries that are uh, supposed to be uh the the friends of the us we look biden looks completely out of control uh, and that's always been the case you know when you see these, group, these scrappy groups um you know come in and upend our you know our ability to hold certain areas, whatever it is, uh, since September eleventh. I mean, it's it's always embarrassing when stuff like this happens. But there seems to just be no cohesion uh, in the response here. and And that becomes clear and clear every day.
3: the u s and Israel are basically on an island in terms of world opinion in terms of view of Israel's assault on Gaza. And the longer that Israel's attacks on Gaza continue, the more at risk, not only our troops are in the region are, but the more at risk we are of getting pulled into this broader conflict. Um, and one of the updates that I did over the holiday, I talked about the insanity of a former Israeli prime minister in the Wall Street Journal, calling, demanding that we try to foment regime change in Iran Um, outrageous, completely insane. But you, of course, have the typical hawks in the US, people like Lindsey Graham, people like John Bolton, out there aggressively calling for us to directly attack Iran. Even though Iran, yes, they support Hamas. Yes, of course, they support the Houthis. They were not directly involved in planning October 7th. But, you know, these warmongers, they just use any excuse to try to get their favorite goal accomplished, which is a direct war with Iran. You know, this ties into the Israeli domestic political situation as well, because Netanyahu is, you know, basically hated across the board in Israeli society. And the only way that he's been able to hold on to power and remain where he is as prime minister is by continuing keeping this conflict going. And so he can say, listen, yes, there are many questions that need to be answered about the security situation, the intelligence failures leading up to October 7th, but that's all for after the war. So he has this incentive to keep this war going indefinitely. And he also has an incentive, and they've been making a lot of noises and have been sort of laying the groundwork to open up another full front with Hezbollah in Lebanon after they pull back in Gaza. So um, this is, you know, massively risky. The Israeli, you know, domestic political situation is pushing them in the direction of actually wanting a broader war. And we've seen no ability of Biden and the U.S. administration to push back on anything that Israel is doing, including drawing us into this broader conflict, which we've already, by nature of our engagement here with the Houthis, which we've already been drawn into. Um, I want to go ahead and turn for uh, a moment here because I never want to lose sight of this, of the immense suffering that is unfolding in Gaza right now, which is really unlike anything else that we have seen in this century. Put this up on the screen. We now have a report from the UN that half of Gazans are in danger of starvation. They are starving. Something like 90% reports that they regularly go a full day without eating anything. And huge numbers are at risk due to the collapse of the healthcare system. Um, Israel targeting hospitals both in the north and the south of Gaza, very few remain in operation. There's very little in the way of medical supplies as well. This uh, tweet says we could see almost a quarter of Gaza's population, close to half a million human beings dying within a year, largely deaths from preventable health causes and collapse of the medical system. It's a crude estimate, but one that is data Driven, Um, let me read you a little bit of what's going on here. They say, tragically, the nearly unprecedented death and injury we've seen so far is likely to only be the beginning. From looking at similar conflicts across the world, public health experts know we are likely to see more children dying from preventable disease than from bullets and bombs. The World Health Organization spokesperson said diarrhea rates among children in refugee-like camps in Gaza were already in November, early November. This is a while ago now more than 100 times normal levels, and there are effectively no treatments available. Children can become dehydrated and die quickly. Diarrheal diseases are the second leading cause of death in children under five worldwide. They're caused by contaminated water sources, lack of access to oral rehydration fluids, upper respiratory infections, chicken pox, and painful skin conditions have also increased. There are fears that the recent floods may result in untreated sewage mixing with fresh water used for drinking and cooking and cause a cholera outbreak. This is something Ryan's been flagging for a while now that oftentimes um, in war zones, especially when you have you know all of the sanitation, basic sanitation has been destroyed. You have people living in these crowded camp situations. Um, that oftentimes the disease that spreads is even deadler, deadlier than the bombs and the bullets, which have been plenty deadly enough. So um, incredibly dire situation unfolding there with no end in sight. Put this next piece up on the screen, you'll remember in the early days after after October 7th, there was a lot of discussion of how the Hamas attack was equivalent to 15 9-11s for a nation of Israel's size. Well, they sort of stopped doing this 9-11 math now because the equivalent figure for Gaza, where more than 20,000 people have now been killed, is approaching 900 9-11s. Um, I actually recommend people read this entire Mother Jones article, How Joe Biden Became America's Top Israel Hawk, because it digs into the fact that he has long been one of the most hawkish uh, with regards to Israel, one of the greatest allies of everyone, every Israeli prime minister, including Netanyahu, how he actually actively undermined some Obama and Hillary Clinton initiatives um, to back Netanyahu during a time when those relations were very fraught. So it's an incredibly interesting and revealing history for understanding how and why Joe Biden is doing what he is and giving them unconditional support in this moment.
5: Yeah. And I'm curious how this evolves, because, again, worth remembering that the Biden administration was telegraphing through the press and otherwise that they wanted in the new year Israel to scale down this invasion. And we don't know. Um, Because, again, Biden is facing immense pressure in the middle of this non-primary primary, primary, uh, but Democrats around the country are facing immense pressure in election year as well over their support for Netanyahu and Netanyahu's government and the Israeli military and and all of its sort of strategic decisions. Uh, And and so that has been a point of contention between Biden and Netanyahu. And and where does this go? If Biden's pressure, and we'll learn more in the days to come, if the Biden administration Administration's pressure was absolutely instrumental in what proves to be um, a long t- a long-term uh, indefinite sort of pause in this invasion that's a, a very uh, different question it's a different side of biden we'll see potentially and the mother jones article highlights how this would be a different side of biden um, when it comes to netanyahu and it it just highlights the political pressures here at home the political pressures uh actually abroad at places like the united nations um at you know allied countries uh that that think differently and and have always approached this conflict differently than the United States, uh, and, and that raises one more huge question, question, Crystal, and this is where the rubber really meets the road for me. Um, the eradication of Hamas, when you're looking at that 9-11 number in particular, this stands out. Uh, the, the aftermath of our response to 9-11, as many people have highlighted since October 7th, was a lot of power vacuums uh, that actually fe- allowed really radical movements to fester uh, and is that what is being set up? Like, what is the plan? Because there, there really is not going to be a response that fully eradicates Hamas from Israel, and it sure as heck is not going to eradicate that kind of underlying ideology uh, and a, a long term. Drawn-out response, uh, Crystal. Along the lines that you just mentioned, the humanitarian concerns for civilians uh, when, it, when it comes to you know wide-scale illness uh, and starvation. What does that do in Israel's interest going forward? This is a le- this is a lesson that many countries have had to learn over the last several decades about what happens in inhumane power vacuums uh, and whether it is ultimately in the interest of a country like Israel or a country of the United States for that situation to continue long-term. And that's just uh, looming over all of this right now.
3: Yeah, there's no doubt that they are radicalizing many more than they are eradicating. There's just no doubt about that. And you can see um, through the history of uh, you know recent Israeli politics that when Palestinians feel that they have a chance at a peaceful resolution, through negotiation, support for armed resistance and uh, radical groups like Hamas drops. And when they don't feel that they have that uh, opportunity or that possibility, support for Hamas and other radical groups rises. And we already see, you know obviously it's very difficult in Gaza to conduct a poll at the moment, but there's indications that support for Hamas has actually gone up during this time period, and in the West Bank, it's very clear where you know they don't have to deal with the failures of Hamas governance, and they are suffering. Don't get me wrong, but not in the, at the level or extent that um, Palestinians in Gaza are right now in support for Hamas, as opposed to the Palestinian Authority, which is you know basically a collaborator um, with the occupying force support for Hamas has skyrocketed so in terms of quote unquote eradicating Hamas they have utterly failed and only made the situation worse at great risk to their own population and at great risk to us, us as well because these bombs that are being dropped uh close you know somewhere around 30,000 at this point a majority of which are quote unquote dumb bombs being dropped indiscriminately on civilian populations these are made in america and we continue to ship them we continue to expedite in fact military weaponry to Israel, even as our own president admits that they are engaged in, quote-unquote, indiscriminate bombing, which is, of course, a war crime. The last piece I want to bring you this morning is, um, you know, it's been pretty clear for a while now what the ultimate goal of Netanyahu and his coalition partners are, what their goal is for uh, the, quote-unquote, day after in Gaza. And the goal is ethnic cleansing. And now they are saying it much more clearly. So put this up on the screen. This is uh, one of the uh, ministers in the uh, Netanyahu government, Bezalel Smotrich. He uh, says that Gaza is a ghetto. If we act strategically, they will emigrate. And we, we Israelis, will live there. We won't let 2 million stay. With hundred to 200,000 in Gaza, the quote, day after debate will be different. They want to leave. They've been living in a ghetto for 75 years. Yeah, I'm sure many do want to leave an active war zone where they are being bombed and starved to death and their homes are being destroyed. You also had uh, the National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gavir on Monday said the Netanyahu government should, quote, encourage the migration of Gazans out of the Palestinian enclave he says, quote, this is a correct, just, moral, and humane solution during a meeting of his Jewish power party in Jerusalem. So these are two um, ministers in the Netanyahu government. These are not nobodies. These are incredibly influential um, voices within his coalition. And they are saying outright that um, you know pushing Gazans permanently out of the Gaza Strip is the ultimate goal. There's been a plan that has been floated reportedly in the U.S. with some bipartisan interest to use U.S. aid dollars to uh, basically force local Arab allies of the United States to take in this refugee population. And so, um, you know, this has been, again, this has been pretty obvious for a while, but now there's not even any, um, any denials around it. It's coming directly from top officials themselves. And, uh, you know, I think every U.S. politician and every U.S. media figure needs to be asking every U.S. politician about whether or not they support this and what their plan is to stop it.
5: Another reminder of the biggest disconnect in the war, which is that Joe Biden publicly says he believes in a two-state solution. Joe Biden's government is instrumental in the prosecution of this war. Without the United States, uh, not just, you know, we supply about 20 percent of their annual military budget, but the, the question is munitions. So uh, when, when Joe Biden's government is prosecuting this war and the U.S. is prosecuting this war and Netanyahu says, you know, for years, he does not believe in a two-state solution. That disconnect is not sustainable, and it is not a tenable uh, situation to lay, or, or let's say justification to lay waste to civilian populations if the two major powers involved in the war are on completely, this is not a, a minor difference they're on completely different pages in completely different universes when it comes to the end goal. And that is a recipe for disaster. And I say that as somebody who actually believes that there was a real necessity for a military response after October 7th. Uh, there shouldn't have been a, c- a ceasefire October 8th, October 9th, October 10th. Um, but you cannot lay waste to civilian populations with that level of a disconnect because it means that you are intentionally driving headfirst into a quagmire and causing suffering uh, without a clear path out of that destruction. Uh, It's it's embarrassing that we we are involved in a conflict where there's that little clarity about what the end goal is um, that has caused and and is continuing to cause so much suffering. That's the the thing that really uh, is among the most disgusting elements of all of this.
3: And yet that is not the only war that we are directly involved with, Emily.
5: No, it isn't, Crystal. It's important uh, to move on here to the uh, increasing violence, escalating violence just over the last couple of days in Ukraine. And we were just talking about the conflict in Israel. These things are happening on a split screen. And remember what a powder keg the world is. Right now. So, strikes, we can put the first element up on the screen here. Uh, CNN is reporting basically strikes began on Friday. Russia has launched, I'll just read from the article, the biggest air attack on Ukraine since the beginning of its full scale invasion, which remember, we are coming up on the anniversary of. Uh, this is from the Ukrainian military telling CNN that, quote, with an unprecedented number of drones and missiles fired at targets across the country, they've killed at least 31 people and injured more than 150 others. The wave of attacks began overnight into Friday and struck nationwide with blasts reported in the capital and as well as, as well as at a maternity hospital in the central city of Dnipro and the eastern city of Kharkiv, the southeastern port of Odessa, and the western city of Lviv, far from the front lines. It's also worth. Emphasizing, The strikes continued Friday afternoon, Ukraine's Air Force said, as a barrage of missiles targeted the northern Chikasi region with one hitting the city of Smila. Other missiles were detected from Russia's Kursk region heading towards the the northeastern Ukrainian city of Sumy. Uh, The massive overnight assault CNN adds comes just days after Ukraine struck a Russian Navy landing ship in Crimea on Tuesday. So this is all within the last week. And the onslaught CNN continues also came shortly after Ukraine received the last package of military aid from the United States until Congress approves the Biden administration's funding request. Biden is requesting another sixty. 60- billion dollars. We're already around a uh, hundred billion dollars into this, which uh, Biden's allies like to point out. What a bargain. It's about one percent of our annual GDP, GDP. So as Lindsey Graham says, you know, you couldn't ask for a better like return on your investment. This is just mm. all it, it, this is all just a, a great deal for the United States of America. That is front and center as Congress returns. Uh, in the new year. They're going to have to make all kinds of decisions. And, uh, you know, we we heard, uh, Ryan and I talked to the new chair of the Freedom Caucus, Bob Good, just a couple of weeks ago, who said straight up on the show, on counterpoints, that Ukraine aid is dead on arrival because the Freedom Caucus has a huge ability to maneuver. We saw that play out over the course of the last year, and they don't want Mike Johnson to basically give an inch on Ukraine aid without also doing, you know, what's what's basically impossible to see Biden compromising on uh, on the border. Another thing worth emphasizing, the Polish military reported a, quote, unidentified airborne object entering their airspace from Ukrainian oh. territory early on Friday morning. Uh, Their chief of the general staff said everything indicated that a Russian missile had entered and then left Polish airspace. Um, That's from Polish reporting, basically. So another reminder of what a powder keg this is, Crystal.
3: Yeah, absolutely. It's easy to lose sight of what a dangerous situation is continuing to unfold every day that that war continues. And so, you know, you have the looming specter of Trump potentially coming back into office, and he is uh, has been become very critical of our support for Ukraine. Even before that, Emily, as you're pointing out, you've got um, House Republicans in particular, but Republicans more broadly, uh, who have become extremely skeptical of continuing this support, and they were unable to, you know, the idea was, all right, we'll give Republicans, some border security money. Everybody apparently just wants to give Israel whatever they want, even though it's a wealthy country. And then we'll stick the Ukraine aid in there and that's how we'll try to get it through. Well, maybe that'll still work, but maybe it won't. It certainly didn't come together before they all left for holiday break. So very, very much in doubt. And then you also have internationally, the global South has always looked, most of the world, frankly, has always looked at this conflict differently than how it has been presented in the Western press. The Biden administration and other people who love to talk about the international rules-based order, you know, they held this up as, oh, this is our fight for democracy. This is our fight against this imperial power grab and might makes right by Russia. But now as this is unfolding, as you said it before, Emily, on a split screen, with this all-out Israeli assault on Gaza and a complete siege And a million people in danger of starving and thousands of children killed and journalists and civilian infrastructure destroyed. I mean, what Israel's doing in Gaza makes what Russia has done in Ukraine look like child's play. As this is playing out, it just becomes totally undeniable that all of this supposed U.S. commitment to the rules-based order and to democracy and to these values-based commitments is all bullshit. And so you had um, Mehdi Hassan pointing this out, uh, put this up on the screen. I thought this was this was this is interesting, sparked a lot of conversation. You can see Mehdi's tweet here. He says, I challenge you to read this statement from the White House today, but change the words Russia, Ukraine, and Putin to Israel, Gaza, and Netanyahu. Go on, do it, see for yourself. And let me read you this, what he actually said. It's a statement from Joe Biden on Russia's aerial assault on Ukraine. Overnight, Russia launched its largest aerial assault on Ukraine since this war began. This massive bombardment used drones and missiles, including missiles with hypersonic capability to strike cities and civilian infrastructure all across Ukraine. Strikes reportedly hit a maternity hospital, shopping mall, residential areas, killing innocent people and injuring dozens more. Stark reminder to the world that after nearly two years of this devastating war, Putin's objective remains unchanged. He seeks to obliterate Ukraine and subjugate its people. He must be stopped. Of course, none of that uh, emotional and clear language Has ever been applied to what Israel is doing on a much vaster, much more devastating, devastating scale within Gaza. And, you know, this is incredibly apparent to people around the world. You now have put this up on the screen the global south effectively abandoning Ukraine. The UN was having a bad 2023. Then came the war in Gaza. Um, As I mentioned before, there was already, you know, a different view in the global south. However, they write, the war between Israel and Hamas has upended their calculations. The atrocities Hamas committed on October 7th shook diplomats from all over the world, but the ensuing war's massive humanitarian toll and U.S. refusal to support a ceasefire in Gaza over the past two months, coupled with European states' divided response to the war has alienated the majority of U.N. members. Diplomats who previously backed Ukraine in the General Assembly have indicated they will not do so in the future. Out of frustration over the West's lack of solidarity with the Palestinians. Kiev quietly dropped a planned resolution commemorating the Holodomor, the Soviet-era famine in Ukraine manufactured by Stalin as it became clear it would not secure strong majority support in the General Assembly. So listen, much of the world, Emily, has already felt the U.S. to be very hypocritical where it comes to the our quote-unquote commitment to the international rules-based order. You know, it's been quite clear for decades that we apply these rules when and how we see fit, but it has never been quite as stark and quite as blatant as it is right now in this situation. So any attempt by the U.S. going forward, I think from here on out, even after Israel is done doing what they're doing in Gaza, any attempt by us to use this language of morals and appeal to international rules-based order, it's dead. It's done. This is over. There's not even any ability to sort of like pretend like that's how the world is governed or like there are any real limits on what we and our allies can do. It's just effectively baked back to might makes right. And, you know,
5: Russia capitalizes on this. This It makes it much easier yes. for them to muddy the waters. They're gonna Absolutely. muddy the waters either way. But let's uh, put B2 back up on the screen just for a quick second, because after this major Russian air offensive started late last week, uh, the Associated Press is reporting here that shelling in the center of the Russian border city of Belgorod Saturday killed 21 people, including three children, according to local officials. Now, Russia's defense ministry is saying that that these are check-made vampire rockets and Ulca missiles that were fired with cluster munition warheads. The Associated Press adds, importantly, it provided no additional information, so they were unable to verify those claims, but cities across Western Russia have come under regular attack from drones since May with Russian officials blaming Kiev. Ukrainian officials never acknowledge responsibility for attacks on Russian territory or the Crimean Peninsula. However, large aerial strikes against Russia have previously followed heavy assaults on Ukrainian cities. Now, let's also then move to B7. This is from the New York Times on December 23rd. This is about potential uh, I'm so sorry. This is uh, B6. Uh, there are two New York Times tear sheets we're about to talk about. And the, the first one is that Putin, Putin quietly signals he is open to a ceasefire in Ukraine. That's the headline. This is remarkable reporting that will not be a surprise to any listeners or viewers of this show, uh, but again, undermines the Biden administration's uh, or the, the lack of of strategy um, and then occasionally horrible strategy that the Biden administration has applied to this conflict. So reporting here from The New York Times, Mr. Putin has been signaling through intermediaries since at least September that he is open to a ceasefire that freezes the fighting along the current lines, far short of his ambitions to dominate Ukraine, Two former senior Russian officials close to the Kremlin and American and international officials who have received the message from Mr. Putin's envoys say, hell of a lead there from the New York Times. That was all one yeah. sentence if you were following along, but <laughs> jam-packed uh, with information. The story continues. In fact, Mr. Putin also sent out feelers for a ceasefire deal a year earlier in the fall of 2022, according to American officials. That quiet overture not previously reported came after Ukraine routed Russia's army in the country's northern East, uh, Mr. Putin indicated that he was satisfied with Russia's captured territory and ready for an armistice. Now, again, many of you know this: that uh, the, the captured territory, much of it has been under contention since 2014, at least, um, and there has been, you know, on and off fighting in those regions. And, and many of those regions are already very favorable to Russia. So Putin sort of being satisfied with the territory that he has, uh, it, it makes. Sense there's sort of logical uh, from from his kind of cold calculated strategic perspective uh, a logical reason behind that. The New York Times later in the story says the signals come through multiple channels, including via foreign governments with ties to both the U.S. and Russia. Uh, a, a Russian unofficial emissaries have spoken to interlocutors about the contours of a potential deal, deal that Mr. Putin would accept. Um, Putin and the Russian army, this is a quote from the story from a source, they don't wanna stretch their capacity further. That's according to an international official who actually met with Russian officials just a couple of months ago, in the fall. There's no evidence, the New York Times continues, that Ukraine's leaders who have pledged to retake all their territory will accept such a deal. Some American officials, and this was, Chris, I don't know about you, I found this to be the critical point of the story. Some American officials say it could be a familiar Kremlin attempt at misdirection and does not reflect genuine willingness by Mr. Putin to compromise. The former Russian officials add that Mr. Putin could well change his mind again if Russian forces gain momentum. So there you see the New York Times uh, giving a little bit to its sources in intelligence. Just reading this as a journalist, it looks like what they're doing is uh, giving a little bit. You know, they're reporting something that American intelligence doesn't want them to report because they're saying that it's just just Putin trying to muddy the waters, blame the U.S. for scuttling peace talks, which which makes him look like uh, the the negotiator who, you know, the the U.S. is turning its back on peace with over and over again. But actually, we are turning our back on peace over and over again. And it's not just Vladimir Putin's claims are not the only proof of that. We have. We have the proof of claims of people in the Ukrainian government. Fiona Hill wrote a story reporting about this in foreign policy of all people um, from the sort of Brookings sect writing about this in foreign policy not long ago. Uh, We know that Mark Milley encouraged Keith to negotiate. uh, What was this last year? Fall of 2022. Actually, I guess that was two years ago now because it's newly 2024. Uh, (laughs) But other, other American officials, according to The Times, believed it was too soon. Soon for talks. So again, crystal very very clear that the US uh is is not satisfied with the terms um that could be brought to the table right now to so, to to stop we're at hundreds of thousands of deaths according to serious that's estimates. Right. Hundreds yeah, of thousands right.
3: of deaths. It is to me a, such a moral atrocity and and in just absolute failure that we scuttled negotiations that were occurring at the beginning of this war. And listen, they could be right. It could be misdirection from Putin. It could be that he's not serious about it. But there's one way to find out, and that's (laughs) to actually engage in the process and try to negotiate a settlement in some sort of good faith. I actually read this article a a little bit different or interpret a little bit different than you, Emily, because— We have had these multiple reports now for years about those early negotiations and -hmm. the fact that it was U.S. pressure specifically and then with our buddies coming in from the U.K. over the top that killed those negotiations. And we said, no, we want you to go to war. We want this fight. We wanted to use Ukraine as our little pawn to try to weaken Russia. We used them. And then now here we are years later, as you said, after hundreds of thousands of lives lost, after so much, and that's, of course, the worst of it. And then you talk about the economic destruction and the lives ruined that we pushed for. And I've said this before, it's actually made me really learning and understanding. This has actually made me more sympathetic to the like all in for Ukraine people, because what we did, was the most morally indefensible, which is we're going to make you fight this war, but we're not going to give you everything that you need in order to be successful. We're just going to, you know, dribble in enough Mm -hmm. to keep you hopeful so that you can fight to the last man standing. And if you read the reports about the uh, enlistment shortage and the way they're pulling men off the street and— you know, the average age of the fighting force now, it's absolutely atrocious. They've lost effectively an entire generation of men in Ukraine because we wanted them to fight this war. And now the reason, the way I read this report is this was not, none of this uh, information about a potential peace deal, potential negotiation, none of this had been reported out by Western media. They just ignored that any of this happened. So the fact that you have the paper of record, for which through which the U.S. defense and intelligence establishment speaks, now saying, "Hey, maybe Putin is actually open to a deal." Here's some details about some previous, you know, uh, openings and previous uh, uh, potential negotiations that he reached out to us and, and tried to float. That, to me, is a significant shift. And then when you add that to put um, the B7 up on the screen, guys, this is a New York Times editorial board member who wrote, now, and again, these were things you were not allowed to say without being a Putin apologist, et cetera, et cetera.
5: Yep, blood on your hands.
3: That's right, absolutely. Ukraine doesn't need all its territory to defeat Putin. Again, New York Times ed board member writing this. And part of what he says, which are things that, you know, much of this is things that people like us have been arguing for for quite a while. He says, regaining territory is the wrong way to imagine the best outcome. True victory for Ukraine is to rise from the hell of the war as a strong, independent, prosperous, and secure state firmly planted in the West. It would be exactly what Mr. Putin most feared from a neighboring state with deep historical ties to Russia. And it would be a testament to what Russia promised to become in 1991, When both countries broke free of the Soviet Union before Mr. Putin entered the Kremlin and succumbed to grievance and the lore of dictatorial power and imperial illusion. In many ways, Mr. Putin has achieved the opposite of what he set out to do. The Ukrainian nation whose existence he poo-pooed has been steeled in fire. And on December 14th, the European Union formally agreed to open accession negotiations with Ukraine, the very westward shift. Mr. Putin went to war to block. Finland has joined NATO. Sweden, Sweden is edging closer to membership. These are not the elements of victory. Because the alternative perspective, Emily, which has some validity, is to say, well, if you let Putin get away with just taking this territory, Mm -hmm. what message does it send to China? Mm -hmm. What message does it send to Russia? That, okay, well, we let you get away with it here. You know, what else is on your list, on your wish list? But what he points out is so important, which is that this has already been a disaster for Russia. This has not gone well for them in the sense that they have forged a very strong Ukrainian national identity, polar opposite of what they wanted. They have pushed Ukraine closer to the West, the polar opposite of what they wanted. They have, you know, introduced now uh, Finland and Sweden edging closer to Finland's join NATO, Sweden edging closer to NATO membership, the polar opposite of what they wanted. Even so it's Ukraine not like,
5: edging closer to, closer to NATO membership.
3: It's not like they can look at what has happened here and and a lot of economic turmoil i mean the, russia has held up better under sanctions than most people thought but it's not like this has been smooth sailing they can't look at this and say this has been great for us it's something we would like to repeat and so that's i think what's important about these pieces and the framing here is again this conversation was not allowed now that it's happening in the new york times it is a marks a dramatic shift in the tenor of the conversation and the sorts of things that are allowed to be floated. And I hope that it enables us to move to a place of being open to negotiated settlement because, listen, it would have been better to try to do the deal early on when Ukraine had more momentum. Now they are in this deal. Now they're in a sort of weakened position. It's very clear, you know, if Trump comes in already, there's a lot of question about whether they'll get any more aid. So they're in a very weakened position. But when you're in a hole, stop digging it could get much worse than it is right now. And so that's why I see these as almost, I mean, it's its horrifying what's happened in Ukraine. These are at least some hopeful signs that perhaps diplomacy, negotiations, and peace could theoretically be at the table.
5: A couple of things you just said that I want to repeat that are, I I think, first of all, you're so right that the story does feel like a turning point in the war, uh, because this is what, you know, as members of Congress are returning here to Washington, D.C., this is what is on their desks. Uh, this is what you know, sort of gives them that permission slip. You know, say, oh, well, there's a member of the New York Times editorial board even talking about this now. Uh, that is very, very different than just before they went to Christmas break. That, that is a, a huge, huge difference. And that may seem silly because of course it is. You shouldn't need to take your cues from a member of the New York Times editorial board when it comes to war and peace, but they do. And uh, Crystal, the other point there is from, from A to B, tens of thousands of lives were... Lost from a when it was not okay to talk about any of these things, lest you have blood on your hands or be a Putin apologist, to point B, where now it's like, you know what, maybe they can give up the Donbass. Tens of thousands of lives were lost. And you alluded to a Wall Street Journal story that was published right before Christmas uh, that showed pretty clear evidence people on the record uh, being illegally drafted by Ukraine. Into war with a system of bribery that was disproportionately shielding affluent Ukrainian men from yeah. service. So, after this failed offensive that places like the New York Times were drip, drip, dripping, telling us was going to change the war, was going to send Putin back on his heels, all of this, now we have a wild mismatch between Western elites. Appetite for war and much of Ukraine's. That's not to say there aren't you know Ukrainian soldiers and Ukrainians that aren't still saying, let's go out there, get Russians, we we will you know lay down our lives uh for this territory. Of course, that still exists, but if you are having to illegally draft middle-aged men, by pulling them off the street, as this Wall Street Journal story documents, um, and Western elites are still saying, let's go get them. Let's keep sending you this money in the way that, Crystal, you made a great point. Uh, we'll, you know, we'll we'll kind of send you the money, but it's going to be on this the schedule, and maybe you won't get everything you want when you want it. Uh, and we're kind of in charge of the war, but we'll also kind of let you do things like you go do what you do with the Nord Stream. It's just a disaster. And and a lot of people are dead because of it,
3: yeah, that's that is absolutely right. So we'll see what the new year brings and if there are any serious efforts to reach for a negotiated settlement. But, you know, i will I will never forget the direct role, the central role that the u s. played in blocking any sort of possibility of a negotiated settlement at the beginning before these hundreds of thousands of lives. Were lost. I will never forget the way that we used Ukraine as our pawn and how much we have been exposed as full of it when it comes to all of our supposed concerns about democracy and the international rules based order. It's just never been more clear than it is at this moment.
0: Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dallas Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls. Offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover
2: more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other. As Infinity presents...
3: Let's go ahead and turn to some domestic politics, because while we were out over the break, major development in terms of Donald Trump and um, his various legal battles. So we had covered previously Colorado, the state Supreme Court, issuing a ruling that if upheld by the Supreme Court, would keep Trump off of that ballot this under um, the provision in the Constitution that says you cannot engage in an insurrection if you'd previously held an office, taken an oath, etc. cetera. So now we've got another state attempting to remove Trump from the ballot. You can put this up on the screen. Now, this one came through a slightly different route. Maine's Secretary of State uh, decided to remove Trump from the ballot because of the 14th Amendment's insurrection ban. Maine's Secretary of State, Sh- Shanna Bellows, paused her decision pending a potential appeal in state court, which Trump's team said they intend to file. Just to give you some of the uh, the nitty-gritty here, they say the decision makes Maine the second state to disqualify Trump from office after the Colorado Supreme Court handed down its own stunning ruling that removed him from the ballot earlier this month. She said her decision will be put on hold until Maine's superior court, a trial-level court, makes a ruling, it is not the highest court in the state, but it's the next level where Trump or others can appeal. Maine's laws mandate that the Superior Court must make a decision within 20 days from Thursday. That was January, Uh, that would be January 17th. So the Maine Superior Court has to weigh in here. That is not the highest level court in Maine. So I assume it'll go all the way up to the Maine Supreme Court. And then very likely, I would assume, the uh, U.S. Supreme Court is going to have to weigh in on these challenges and how to interpret this um, part of the Constitution. Maine Secretary of State was pressed on her decision here on CNN. Let's take a listen.
6: I think it's really important that people understand the process. Uh, as a general matter, states uh, have the power to control their own ballots and, in fact, do under the Constitution. And Maine law specifically delegates to me as Secretary of State a requirement to review the qualifications for any candidate running for office. So for example, uh, last week, the Superior Court found that my decision to bar Mr. Chris Christie from Maine's presidential primary ballot due to lack of signatures was lawful and correct. So my job, I qualify Mr. Trump for the ballot uh, and under Maine law, any registered voter can bring a challenge to that qualification. In this case, there were three challenges, and I was required by law to hold a hearing, an administrative hearing, to review the evidence, hear testimony. Uh, Both sides were represented by counsel. Mr. Trump was represented by an attorney, and then I'm required to issue a decision. That's my obligation under the oath I swore to the Constitution.
7: In terms of the criticism that your decision takes away the right for voters to have their voice heard, do you believe
6: that's a valid concern? Again, my first and foremost obligation is my oath to uphold the Constitution and the rule of law. Now, different states are different. For example, our neighboring New Hampshire, there are more than a dozen candidates on the Democratic presidential ballot, but Mr. Joseph Biden is not on the Democratic presidential primary ballot in New Hampshire, and there are more than a dozen Republican candidates. In Maine, there are two candidates on the Democratic presidential primary ballot and less than a dozen Republican presidential candidates. So every state is different. My obligation and duty, my sole consideration is my oath to uphold the Constitution.
3: So Emily, you and I haven't talked either about Maine or about Colorado, also with their Supreme Court decision um, that would ban Trump from the ballot. That's now been put on hold, waiting for what happens at the Supreme Court. But what are your overall thoughts about what's going on here?
5: Yeah, I mean, I think it's really, really Difficult to watch this play out, knowing that you know as awful. And I say this all the time. I was there on January sixth covering the riot, and it's one of the you know worst, if not the single worst thing that I've ever seen. I've covered riots. Uh, that was you know, the the worst of the worst that I've ever mm. seen, and it was awful. And Donald Trump was playing with fire, and he bears responsibility for it. He has not been charged with insurrection. And Crystal, uh, there are historic. I think, differences between what was being discussed, and we have an article on this, actually. Uh, You can put C3 up on the screen. This is from ABC News. Uh, What was being discussed as the 14th Amendment was written, very specifically about people who took up arms personally, personally took up arms against the United States. Now, the 14th Amendment does have a point about people who gave aid or comfort uh, Mm -hmm. to people who took up arms against the United States, and that sort of makes it much more open-ended and and, and kind of vague, but it has never been interpreted in this way at all. And with nobody, let alone Donald Trump, being charged with insurrection, and I don't say that to mean that Jack Smith should charge Donald Trump with insurrection uh, personally, with the kind of insurrection that Confederate did when uh, they they literally fought to the death, uh, people from their own country to preserve, as as Nikki Haley is uh, a little bit scared to say, the institution of slavery. Uh, we could we could get into that, Crystal, but really, there's no need to because uh, there's no point to talking about Nikki Haley anymore. But uh, I mean, the, this was a very specific. Uh, this is a, a very, very specific phenomenon that was being addressed in the Fourteenth Amendment about taking up arms uh, and and fomenting an, an insurrection, a war against your own country. And Donald Trump had insane disagreements, uh, some that he didn't even believe in. I think is very clear, and and did mislead people about. I continue to think that's one of the most disgusting parts of all of this is the way Donald Trump treats his own voters, um, and, and you know he he did horrible things. That's all true. Uh, charging him with insurrection, Crystal, it, it, not only do I think it is legally wrong, or not charging him with insurrection, but then taking him off the ballot, not only do I think it's legally wrong and dubious and sets a terrifying precedent, I also think um, it's really pushing us towards the brink of of something very, very frightening. It feels like a recipe for a lot more January 6th uh, going forward when you kind of take that out of the voters' hands. People feel... Uh, powerless. It, it makes people feel powerless more and more. And that's when people get desperate. Uh, so I just, it, the, the whole thing is uh, frightening.
3: But I mean, we already are on the brink of something ugly. We that's already true. had January six. <laughs> like, I, I mean, I'm thinking about 2024. And like, I'm normally so excited about a presidential election year because I'm such a political nerd. <laughs> like, I can't even imagine a good outcome. There is no outcome that appears to be on the menu that is a good outcome. So I think the legal issues here are genuinely very tricky. Yeah, I read the Colorado State Supreme Court ruling and like all of the different pieces that they were grappling with. I just want to read for people what Section 3 of the 14th Amendment actually says in terms of the just like plain, you know, English meaning that people are taking from, because you do have a majority of Americans, actually a pretty strong majority, including a quarter of, quarter of Republicans, who said, yeah, I actually agree with the Colorado uh, Supreme Court on this. So it says, no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the US or as a member of any state legislator or as an executive, or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the U.S., shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof, but Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each House, remove such disability. So we just had the Colorado GOP uh, appeal, the the state Supreme Court ruling there. One thing that was interesting to me is they did not actually contest on the grounds that Trump was not engaged in or giving aid or comfort to the enemies engaged in an insurrection. They challenged some of these more technical legal pieces, including whether the president of the United States is a quote office of um, yeah. you know that this would apply to, which I always have thought was preposterous. And one of the things that the um, that that news article we had at, up a moment ago mentions is that in the debate over the language of this amendment, this actually came up. There's a single reference in that Senate debate to the fact that president and vice president are not specifically mentioned in this draft. And um, a Maryland Democratic senator said, why did you admit omit to exclude them? And um, this person who drafted it responded, let me call the senator's attention to the words or hold any office, civil or military under the United States is included and that ended the discussion, basically meaning like, well, it says any office. Like, of course the president is included here. So it was interesting to me that the Republican Party that filed this appeal did not actually take issue with the idea that Trump engaged in insurrection or gave aid and comfort to with some of these tricky legal issues. So listen, my view is it's appropriate to have this provision in the Constitution to protect the state from, you know, insurrectionists and people who give aid and comfort to insurrectionists, I think it is appropriate to have this in. I think it is very right, like Sagar. Gotta block, gotta keep Sagar out of office. And I think that the only appropriate avenue in terms of the like vagueness of this provision and the fact that it hasn't been applied in modern times really since the Civil War, or at least very rarely, I think it's entirely appropriate for it to go to the Supreme Court and for them to set the guidelines of here's the process, here's the definition, here's what it means, here's how you know, and here's how we can, um, you know, here's how we can work with this moving forward. The last thing, and I'll call your attention to in that um, news article about what the debate was at the time is, um, you know, there's a question of whether this was even meant to apply to future insurrections or if it was really just specifically for the civil war. And there was some language in the debate about, they say, this is to go into our constitution and to stand to govern future insurrection as well as the present. And I should like to have that point definitely understood. So there was a sense at the time and um, you know, for the conservative justices who claim to be originalists and to look at what the meaning and intent was at the time and to look at the um, plain text reading of the language of the constitution, the Colorado Supreme Court in particular wrote there. My cat's going crazy in the background, guys. Your cat is
5: fomenting an insurrection against (laughs) your chair.
3: Salem is going to be barred from holding office in that chair. Anyway, (laughs) um, they really wrote the language to sort of challenge the uh, judicial approach of the conservative justices. Now, what do I think is going to happen? I think they're going to say, no, Trump's going to be on the ballot. I think it's very unlikely that they uphold the Colorado State Supreme Court decision. But, you know, Maggie Haberman did actually say something about, I guess Trump is kind of worried that his own justices that he put on there might flip on him and keep him off the ballot. So, listen, crazier things have happened, I guess. You never know.
5: Yeah, first of all, Crystal's cat has turned her chair into, like, the teacups at Disney World. <laughs> it's just riding. It's amazing. Uh, smart. But, um, yeah, I think we can put the last element up on the screen, too. That's another thing, you know, where where the legality of this is uh, tricky or or dubious. Time magazine says Americans appear more amenable to autocracy in 2024, but they're alluding there to, to very real polling. And if you look at the RCP averages, for example, of Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump, you see this, uh, Ryan described it as like an alligator jaw, crocodile jaw. I forgot which one he said, uh, as soon as the indictments started coming down of Trump's support just going up, DeSantis' support just going down, that uh, the, the sort of ongoing lawfare against Trump just solidifies uh, people's support for him. And that's where, Chris, what's your point? You know, some Republicans are involved in filing these challenges and some yeah. Republicans supporting uh, what Colorado's decision was. That's, I mean, Donald Trump is just incredibly polarizing. And I think maybe one thing that we can agree on is uh, the Democrats have, and never Trump kind of Republicans, um, uh, sort of desperately have flung lawfare at Donald Trump since 2015, uh, when the dossier was first funded by Republicans, by the way. Uh, they have they have tried to thwart Donald Trump in every way except actually persuading the voters that they shouldn't support Donald Trump. They have like not figured out the persuasive argument for this hardened 30% of the country that supports Donald Trump to the point where he can win a primary and then convince you know, another 20% of the country that the other option is so bad. Um, that you know they have to go with Donald Trump for a number of different reasons for a number of yeah. different voters, and and that again is the real like that's that's another real problem that hangs over all of this, uh, is is that 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 argument of you know things are Joe Biden is talking about the economy as though everything is rosy, and of course he is. He's been president for a couple of years in the middle of a reelection campaign. He wants to say we've made progress, and you know there's an argument that some progress has been made, but people uh, express. They aren't feeling like the economy is is the same way that Joe Biden is talking about the economy. They express yeah. that they're not feeling the same way about geopolitical stability uh, and American leadership on the world stage as Joe Biden is saying that they should, uh, and that's where Trump comes in and is persuasive to a lot of people. So there's still an incredible vacuum um, in the the persuadability of a chunk of the country. Not everyone. We're extremely polarized around the issue of Trump and very polarized in general, um, but that continues I think to be a real handicap for Trump's Senate.
3: I think um, I saw some other polling about America's rising comfort with authoritarianism. And it that sentiment is most strongly expressed among the like hardest partisan Republicans, but the rise is significant regardless of political ideology. And to me, it gets to something you're pointing to here, which is that it's not that Democrats haven't tried to persuade people they shouldn't vote for Donald Trump. They certainly have tried. But what they've been unwilling to do or unable to do, given their own, like, you know, compromised situations and (laughs) sea of money and politics that infects both parties, they've been unable and unwilling to offer an affirmative, positive agenda that is a viable alternative. And so to me, it's, very logical and you know very clear if you look at history that if people feel like democracy isn't delivering for them then they may sour on democracy or they may you know not prioritize democracy and i think that's a lot of what you're seeing here is people feel like you know whoever i vote for in this upcoming election it's not going to help me it's not going to affect my life they don't feel like these um the stakes of these elections aren't really the same because there's no expectation that either major political party is going to actually deliver for them. And so instead, it's like, all right, well, who's on my side in the culture war? Who's like owning or hating on the person that I also hate? And that's what our politics devolves to as uh, as well as Willingness to reach for authoritarian tactics to keep the group that you see as an existential threat—that you've been told by media as an existential threat—to try to keep them at bay. So I think that's part of what's going on here in terms of like the lawfare against Donald Trump. I mean, there's no doubt about it, like the RussiaGate nonsense, all that stuff. Um, but you do have to separate out, separate out like which of these claims are legitimate mm-hmm. and have some basis, and which are just total like fabricated distraction and bullshit. So the fact that some of the claims are distraction and bullshit does not mean that all of the claims are distraction and bullshit. And um, I think there's a reason why the normie reaction to the language in this in 14th Amendment section three has been like, oh, yeah, that that sounds like him. Like that kind of fits <laughs> because it does. If you just read it, you're like, well, if it applies to anyone, it's this dude. So, um, like I said, where do I think this is going to go? Ultimately, I think the Supreme Court's going to strike it down. And so it's not going to ult- really, you know, matter that much. But I guess you never know what could happen. And um, it, uh, it's certainly a, a test of where we are as a country. And it will be a test of how everyone reacts to what's going on here.
5: Yeah, I agree. And we will expect uh, something on these cases legally in just the next couple of days. So there's a lot of news to stay tuned to when it comes to uh, these ballot qualification questions.
0: Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at
2: brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80.
3: So let's talk about the other side of the ledger here. Joe Biden, um, not looking so hot for his uh, re-election as we head into 2024. And none other than MSNBC's Steve Kornacki, breaking down the numbers with a dire warning for him. Let's take a
8: listen. How about the Democratic end of things? Joe Biden seems poised to be the Democratic nominee. What kind of year has he had politically? Well, again, he started 2023 coming off those good midterms for Democrats and his approval rating, you know, 4650 wasn't that bad, but it's taken a hit this year. And as we start to close out the year, our final NBC poll had him at just 40 percent approval, 57 percent disapproval. How does this compare to past presidents entering the the re-election year. Here you can see it. Here's the 40 that we have Biden at right now. These are all the final polls heading into the election year, re-election year that NBC conducted. You just see all the recent presidents. Look, Trump got beat in 2020. He was at 44 heading into his re-election year. Bush Sr. got beat in 92. He was at 52 and heading south rapidly uh, there. But you see how that number compares. That's the lowest. That's the lowest in an NBC poll for an incumbent facing a re-election year. But it is a tight race when you poll Biden versus Trump at the start of the year. In the average of the polls nationally, Biden had a two point advantage. Now, at the end of the year, it is Trump who, on average, has a two point advantage here. And that leads to this final graphic here a poll from the uh, Wall Street Journal recently. They included a bunch of third party options. And against Biden and Trump, they added up to 17%. That's a big question heading into 2024. Is there going to be a real third party candidate to create a wild card in this? So,
3: lowest approval rating. Of an incumbent president heading into re-election ever. Ever. That that's where right. Joe that's where Joe Biden stands as of now. And um, I mean, it's for them, it's complete disaster. I also saw a poll this morning, Emily, that you know, ties into our discussions, both about Ukraine and uh, certainly about Israel, that foreign policy which normally is a kind of like a back burner issue in American politics, has now become one of the top issues that both Democrats and Republicans and independents, all three, are focused on in terms of a vote choice. And we know that Biden is dramatically at odds with his own base um, in terms of his unconditional support for Israel, young voters in particular, Arab Americans, Muslim Americans. Really, there's a huge... um, racial divide in views towards Israel as well with um, with, uh, both black and brown voters, much more supportive of Palestinians, much more skeptical of Israeli military actions than white voters in general. So uh, he's got trouble on basically every front. And listen, I mean, in some ways, the best thing he's got going for him, he should be very much opposed to these uh, decisions from Colorado and Maine, because I think his only shot is that people find Trump even more odious and distasteful than they find him. (laughs)
5: That's a good point. I also think one thing from uh, Kornacki is the hysteria is about to ramp up when it comes to third-party candidates, and this has been um, something I've I've really believed for a long time, which is that RFK Jr. is uh, more of a threat actually to Trump than to Biden. And I know that sounds weird, uh, but I really think that the more Trump goes after RFK Jr. the more attractive he looks to some people on the west uh, on the left because yeah. there's been so little conversation about his long support and uh, just like very substantive activist work uh, in the environmental movement and in other sort of anti-corporate spaces over the last couple of decades, and people can disagree about RFK Jr., uh, but there just there hasn't been a lot of of highlighting that part of his record. And if Donald Trump's campaign starts to highlight that part of his record, I think that makes those numbers tick upwards in a way that Karnacki is saying seventeen percent for a, a third party candidate. Well, going forward, if you depending on who stays in the race, who who goes independent, uh, who stays independent, all of these different questions uh, that will be hashed out in less than a year now, um, uh, that is I mean, if you have two big independent bids. Um, if you have, you know, RFK Jr. and somebody else, uh, you, you, we saw Jill Stein actually get, you know, not not because Putin, you know, controlled the minds of voters in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, but we saw Jill Stein actually do better than a lot of elites expected her to in 2016, much to the chagrin of those elites. So if you have someone as high profile as RFK Jr. and then someone else, maybe a Cornell West that gets the type of support that Jill Stein did, you put those two together. Uh, that's big trouble for both of the candidates. And I really would expect Crystal uh, heading into the spring here, heading into Iowa and New Hampshire just in the next couple of months, hysteria about third-party candidates is really going to start ramping up.
3: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, I really think that RFK Jr.'s candidacy has been undercovered thus far Mm -hmm. in terms of its impact. And I agree with you. You know, when he jumped in the race, the um, snap take was, oh, this is going to be worse for Trump. And that was a reasonable take because his approval rating with Republicans was much higher than his approval rating with Democrats. But I always thought it would be more complex than that because um, for one thing, what you're pointing to, you know, negative polarization is so strong that if you just have Trump like relentlessly and other right wing figures relentlessly attacking RFK Jr., then you're gonna have, you know, a reaction from people who are more liberal, more on the left. You're gonna have a opposite reaction from people who are Republicans. And so those numbers can shift. He's a Kennedy, right? That's a big thing um, in terms of how people think about him. And um, you know, so I I always thought it was very possible that the way people were thinking about him shift, you know, in terms of Israel you could quibble around the margins, but all three of these dudes have basically the same policy, which is unconditional support. Trump would probably not even been doing the like little bit of hand wringing that Joe Biden has been doing. RFK Jr., if anything, is the mo- most talkish towards Israel and most pro-Israel of all three. But that doesn't mean that young voters who are disgusted with Joe Biden won't vote for, you know, an RFK Jr. or, you know, certainly a Cornell West or a Jill Stein, just out of sheer disgust with um what he has actively been doing. You know, it's it's one thing to have a theoretical position on Israel. It's another thing to actually be there sending the bombs that are being dropped on children and um destroying, you know, schools and hospitals, et cetera. So and it's
5: dangerous uh, if young Democrats in places like Ann Arbor And Madison, Wisconsin and all over Pennsylvania either vote for someone else or stay home. Stay home. Let alone like vote for someone else. But if they just stay home next November, that is a huge problem
3: in Michigan, Wisconsin for Joe Biden. But Biden's defenders, you know, they've identified the real problem here, which is not the policies. It's not the unconditional support for Israel. It's not the uh, despair. It's not the fact that they feel like he's going to accomplish literally nothing in a second term, which we'll get to in a moment. Put this up on the screen. John Fetterman and other Biden defenders, they see the problem as people who would say a critical word about Joe Biden. They're the real villains here. And, uh, you know, shame on you, John Fetterman, for making me defend James Carville. But- (laughs) Betterman trashed James Carville for warning of Biden loss, telling him to shut the F up. I'll use this as another opportunity. He's told, uh, I believe this is what Politico that he was doing this interview with, to tell Carville to shut the F up. Like I said, my man hasn't been relevant since grunge was a thing. And I don't know why he believes it's helpful to say these kinds of things about an incredibly difficult circumstance with an incredibly strong and decent and excellent president. I will never understand that. So, um, you know, the real issue here- Emily, is anyone who would point out the fact that Joe Biden has literally the lowest approval rating of any incumbent president seeking re-election?
5: I mean, Joe Biden desperately needs some tough love. And James Carville, long close to the Clintons, uh, or instrumental in uh, Bill Clinton's political successes, Think about what Bill Clinton, we now know thanks to reporting, was telling Hillary Clinton's campaign in the fall of 2016. He was trying to sort of raise a lot of the same red flags that James Carville has, I think, calmly but incisively been raising over the last couple of years. But just in recent times, too, his criticisms of the Democratic Party uh, just being coded increasingly. Uh, as a, the party of the elites, and we can debate the substance of that, but James Carville has, has made some pretty good points about how they come across to voters, the issues they choose to talk about, how they choose to talk about them, all of that. Uh, if If Joe Biden needs anything right now, Uh, Let's. If if I'm putting my, you know, I'm I'm at the Biden re-election campaign right now. If he needs anything, it's tough love, exactly from people like James Carville, not bear hugs from people like John Fetterman that tell him everything is fine, Joe. Uh, Even saying it, you know, privately versus publicly, it's important that it's public uh, so that there's pressure. For the campaign, there's pressure from Democrats. Again, this is what the Democratic strategist campaign had on. It's not a hat I like to wear, Crystal, but I will do it for the (laughs) sake of the show. Uh, They they need this badly because they're in. Again, they're they're going up against as Hillary Clinton did, the former host of the Celebrity Apprentice. Like who I mean, it's just this is should not be hard, but it is for Democrats. Um, because they're so... And it's the same thing for the Republicans that are trying to challenge Trump for the primary. Like, why is it hard to beat the former host of Celebrity Apprentice in an election? Because you
3: guys suck. You you (laughs) suck. And they need someone to tell them that. Sometimes it's just that simple. All right, so let's go ahead and take a look at how voters are seeing their choice. This is from um, the uh, pollsters that we partner with for our focus groups, JL Partners. They do these great word clouds where they ask voters, okay, What do you think Biden, and then they ask about Trump, but first of all, what do you think Biden is going to accomplish in a second term as president? Let's put this up on the screen. And you can see, jumping right down at you, the number one choice, nothing. They think he's going to accomplish nothing. The next ones are like, economy, he's going to accomplish economy? What does that even mean? It
5: sounds like John Fetterman said it.
3: Bad chance. Yeah. (laughs) Money. Um, but democracy is another one. Power is another one. But I mean, the top choice, like overwhelmingly, if you guys are just listening to this, is nothing. Which, I mean, how can you even really dispute that when he hasn't run on anything? The only thing he was really promising is just like, I'll, you know, be a bulwark against Trump. That's it. It's even on Roe versus Wade, which is such a pivotal and central issue for a lot of Democratic voters now. It's not like he's promising to do anything on the issue. He's just saying, like, I won't make it worse. So nothing to me seems like a pretty logical takeaway from what his goals and accomplishments are likely to be in a second term. And then uh, they asked the same thing about Trump. What do they think Trump will accomplish? But this up on the screen, he said, revenge. That was n- number one for, for Trump was revenge. And I, th- I actually said, Donald Trump said it. Well, he kind of did because he reposted the word cloud and like owned it <laughs> like he was proud that that's what people want uh, think he'll accomplish. And then, you know, next is power. You've got economy, you've got dictatorship. You actually have uh, also dictator pops up there, America. So <laughs> that's funny. So some people were like, "What is Donald Trump going to accomplish in a second term?" Eh, America. I think he'll accomplish America. That okay. will
5: accomplish economy in America. <laughs>
3: so there you go. There's our choices, guys. Between nothing and revenge, pick your poison.
5: Well, Crystal, I also wonder to what extent the nothing is part of the Biden strategy as well, because to your point, he does seem to be running on this idea that he's a bulwark against Trumpism, that he will just sort of stand in the way um, as a kind of a a rubber stamp against the forces, as he says, of uh, the forces against democracy, that, you know, I will be here, my administration will be here again, though. Um, that might be an electoral strategy that has some benefits. In the long term, that does not defeat uh, the part of Trumpism that has anti-democratic impulses. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a, a fair enough argument, as, as hysterical as I think some people who c- can sometimes be about that case. Um, I, I think, you know, Donald Trump posting <laughs> word cloud saying that like, I'm in a, accomplishing revenge uh, is sort of a, a funny point to that extent. And the, the reason that this doesn't accomplish the defeat of tr- those parts of Trumpism in, in the long term is because people are... Uh, turning to Trump in desperation for the substance, as we just talked about. So like if if you're not, if Joe Biden isn't running on, um, you know, real wages, for example, uh, real wages are not increasing because inflation is stubborn and there are signs that it's going in the right direction. But overall, it has not gone under the right direction. in the Biden economy student loans are a huge problem for a, a big chunk of the population right now. Um, people turn to uh whether it's whether it's Trump or' someone from the left they turn in desperation when the substance is not delivered on and so it's actually really dangerous to think you can just continue to elect your way out of what feels like a a a autocratic hole uh, to some people, to you know, to Joe Biden and, and his folks to say, we're, we're just going to keep electing Democrats and that will keep Donald Trump at bay until one of our points of lawfare is successful. He's in prison. That does nothing to eradicate Trumpism. There's an argument. We were just talking about the polling that it makes him stronger because there's some voters who really don't like it. Um, and it, it sort of can heighten Tensions in the country in ways that push people more to Trump's side. We don't know, uh, you know, some evidence that that would happen. But the bottom line is we do know people are right that the substance isn't being delivered on. And so the, the, the most moral and effective way to tackle this problem would actually be to try and improve the daily lives of Americans. But, of course, uh, they can't do that.
3: <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah, I mean, in a sense, both nothing and revenge are like just oppositional. You know, the nothing is like, I'll beat Donald Trump and then I won't do all the crazy shit. Like, it won't be chaos. I won't do all right. the crazy shit that they would do. And right. for Trump, obviously, revenge is like, oh, I'm going to I'm gonna own the libs the way that you want me to, which has always been like a core of his appeal. And again, if people don't have an expectation that uh, these leaders and this democratic system is going to deliver for them in any real way, just an oppositional... Message holds some level of appeal. So it's not an accident that they both land in
0: that place. Residents at Brightview senior living communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence and choice. Brightview Dulles corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events, chef prepared meals, Safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care—everything you need is here. Discover more at
2: BrightViewSeniorLiving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury, with a reveal unlike any other. As Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80.
5: Let's move on to the news Sagar broke over the Christmas break, uh, the holiday break crystal. I want to actually just start here with the clip. If folks didn't see Sagar's interview here on Breaking Points with Tucker Carlson, they should absolutely check that out on the channel. But here's the part of the interview that went pretty viral uh, because Tucker Carlson took a, a pretty big shot at one of the most uh, successful commentators on the right, one of the biggest podcast hosts in the country, um, let alone on the right, and that's Ben Shapiro.
4: There was a lot of consternation around some comments you made, I think by Ben Shapiro and other, where you were like, well, I've never seen this level of care about Americans who are dying of right. fentanyl, which I think is a traditional nationalist message. And yet I've watched the entire kind of right-wing ecosystem get embroiled in fundamentally what is a third world conflict? Now, we can say support, you know, not support. We can have criticisms, et cetera, of that. But what explains this like literal allegiance to a narrative on Ukraine, on Israel? Why is it that so many of these people don't seem to have the same level of care for actual American citizens?
9: You know, I find it really distressing. And in both of those conflicts, I approached it with a clean conscience because I just don't have strong feelings one way or the other. And I'm not hostile, I've never hated Ukraine. I don't have any feelings about Ukraine. And Russia, same thing. I've never been to either place and I'm not invested emotionally. So I could just just look at it from an American perspective. In the case of Israel and the Arab world, I've spent a fair amount of time in both, and I like both. And I felt terrible for the people who were killed on October 7th, I still do. So I didn't, I, I had no weird motive. I was just like thinking about it from an American perspective. Is this good for us or is it not? And I was just amazed by the intolerance And the willingness to immediately go to invective and character assassination. And it's like, I said, you know, first of all, if the people who live in Gaza who are being moved out are so evil and dangerous that they can't live in the region, why would you want them to move into my country? And Tucker, by the way, then continued along these lines. He did an interview with Vivek Ramaswamy and he
7: likened what just happened in Israel, the the kidnapping of women and their rape. I mean, he's showing video of this happening, like as he's talking about this. He compared that to drug overdose deaths in the United States. Now, I I believe we should fully care about the 100,000 drug overdose deaths that happened in the United States. These are two completely different issues. To to go this far afield to link the issues, the only reason you're doing this is because you wish to downplay the atrocity that just happened in Israel. You're not upplaying the atrocity of what's happening on American streets. Those are two different types of atrocities. People who are addicted to fentanyl, sticking needles in their arms and overdosing is 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 a moral blight. It is a moral atrocity and a moral evil for people to kidnap women, rape them, and drag them back to the Gaza border. Those are not the same thing. And Tucker knows that. But this is a cheap way of, of telling you not to look. Don't look. Stop caring. Because after all, what does it matter? What does it matter? Now, again, I, I don't know who thinks that that's a sophisticated point of view, especially when nobody is calling for America to go to war with Iran. The entire purpose of having an aircraft carrier in the Mediterranean is to, is to avoid that. But here, here is Tucker playing, I don't even know the game he's playing. This is just a dumb it's a dumb game.
5: So this has all been, thank you, Crystal. This has all been kind of snowballing after the, the vague thing. Then Sager brought up with Tucker and and that's how this all uh, started rolling. And uh, this is interesting because it represents a divide in the conservative movement really since the inception of the conservative movement. And Sager was getting at that. Uh, that's, that's really what Sager was talking about. This is about the sort of, paleoconservative argument that's been around since Pat Buchanan, even since like Ross Perot, um, but others have, have made similar arguments. And that's where the personal disagreement, I think, is the least helpful um, uh, I from what I just saw from Ben, who you know I, I agree with on a lot, but disagree with on uh, some stuff as it pertains to Israel. He's, uh, I think, further to the right of a lot of Republicans on Israel. He would probably uh, admit that himself. I do think Lindsey Graham basically is calling people like Lindsey Graham, Lindsey Graham included, are, are basically calling for a war with Iran. Um, right? You know, in, in things that we surely know would uh, likely spark a much broader, deadlier conflict. So I, I don't agree on that point. I think people actually are putting us in danger of a war with Iran. I agree with Tucker on that point and disagree with Ben on that point. But the the kind of personal um, back and forth there I, I think is – unhelpful because it becomes one thing I've seen more and more from the right. Reminds me of something I saw a lot on the left in the aughts um, as the left was, I think, more much more deft at using digital tools like YouTube uh, and social media. It became sort of soap operas. Uh, th- th- there became this bubble of soap operas driven by personality beefs. Um, great for clicks, great for ratings and all of that, but not uh, super helpful towards the you know end of of landing on uh, the most moral version of the conservative argument, and I, I guess you know I don't think it's super helpful for the the personal distractions to get in the way of what is uh, substantive. Substantively, I don't think either of them should be saying the other person doesn't care about. Uh, the lives on either side. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think that about either of them. I think there's a legitimate question, though, of American interest. And I think it's it sucks if personal disagreements get in the way of uh, actually debating substantively what America's interest is in Israel and in Ukraine.
3: Yeah, so, I mean, what you basically see here is a divide between um, paleoconservatism and neoconservatism. And Mm -hmm. I subscribe to neither philosophy, so I disagree (laughs) with both of them in different ways, right? Um, Obviously, Shapiro is, um, you know, very, uh, and understandably, as anyone should be, horrified at the atrocities that were committed on October 7th. He does not care about what is happening to Gaza civilians in Gaza in the same way that he cared about what happened to civilians in Israel. And he is incredibly hawkish. And by the way, oh my God, the cat just jumped on the table. And by the way, there's Salem. By the way, incredibly um, dishonest about the history that led us here and basically justify any Israeli action. I dramatically disagree with that. And it comes from a variety of places. I mean, you know, there's, There's lots of, um, I think there is an appropriate pointing out of hypocrisy with regards to, this is a man in Ben Shapiro who has made a living and become extremely wealthy with a core argument against identity politics and against, uh, quote unquote, cancel culture and like the safe space on college campuses stuff and, you know, supposed commitment to free speech. All of that has been tossed out the window when it comes to a cause that he is very, very concerned about in part because of his identity. So that's the Shapiro side. You know, on the paleoconservative side, um, this argument of like, well, I don't know why you care. I can't wrap my head around that for a variety of reasons here. I mean, first of all, for me, um, what really looms very large is the just moral catastrophe that is unfolding on our watch with our dollars, with our diplomatic cover, et cetera. I mean, this is the most devastating war documented now by a number of Western media outlets that we've seen in this century. More journalists killed, more children killed, more buildings destroyed, more civilian infrastructure destroyed, more people starving to death. Like something... Unprecedented is happening before our eyes. And so to have this view of like, well, I don't get why you care about that. I just, I just can't really wrap my head around that. And then if you also consider that it's not like this is just some, with regard to Israel and Gaza, that this is just some random conflict around the world that doesn't impact us. Are you kidding me? Do you know how much money we have sent to Israel over all of these years and how close our relationship is and how deeply we're implicated in all of this? And you can take the position like Vivek Ramaswamy does, for example, of like, listen, they can do what they want. We're just like, we're not going to fund it. And okay, that's fine. But that doesn't erase the fact that we are like have been hand in glove with them for years and years and years. So even if that's your policy, once you're president, et cetera, you know, that doesn't erase our responsibility and implicate us directly in what's happening there, not to mention, of course, all of the implications about how this can spark security threats for us, how this can spark security concerns for our troops in the region, how this can draw us into a broader war. So on every level, the paleoconservative view of, like, well, we just shouldn't care about it, and I don't know why everybody's so, like, upset about this doesn't land for me. So that's why I say, like, I don't have a dog in for this fight because in different ways, like, I don't subscribe to either of their ideologies, and in different ways, I really disagree with them. But the one piece that, you know, I will say, I think um, is appropriate to shine a light on by people who are paleoconservatives, which is, like, Tucker, which is, like, you know, I think Sagar would put himself probably in that category is you had all these people during the Trump era on the right who ran around calling themselves America first and aligning themselves like they were paleo conservatives. And then the minute that it's Israel, it all changes. Now I don't know yeah. that I would really put you, would you put Shapiro in that category though? Because I think, you know, he's he was a Ted Cruz guy. Like he never was the biggest Trump guy so on the cancel culture stuff, free speech stuff, total hypocrite. On foreign policy, I'm not so sure, but there are plenty of other people who cloak themselves in I only care about America, America first, who the minute it's Israel, they're like ship the weapons, ship the aid dollars, get us involved, go to war with Iran um because it happens to be, you know, a country that they feel really tied to for a variety of of reasons. You know, I was actually
5: just going to say, um, you know, the I went and watched Ben Shapiro did his, his Sunday special with Tucker Carlson five years ago. And they had a really, you know, interesting debate, interesting conversation. They didn't agree with each other on everything. And, you know, remember five years ago, this sort of smack in the middle of a lot of these changes in the Republican Party and in the middle of the kind of Trump phenomena. And it was really friendly. And uh it was it was like a very I thought it was a very like helpful, like hour long interview. And that's interesting um, because. Yes, like Israel is becoming one of those clarifying moments for where the Republican Party wants to go. And that's why, again, I feel like the personal stuff isn't super helpful um, because there's is something serious that underlies a lot of this. I was on a panel earlier this year and uh, about the kind of new right. Uh, for a bunch of political science professors, and one of the other pa- panelists, uh, I think said something about the new right being anti-war, and it, it, hmm. it, you know, the, a lot of the members of the the new right. Um, want to bomb cartels? Like that's long been a part of this sort of America first philosophy. It is not as clear cut, sort of Buchananist, be um, because they would kind of gladly hand contracts to Lockheed and Raytheon to mm. bomb the hell out of Sinaloa in Mexico, right mm-hmm. next door to us. Um, so it, it it doesn't totally work. Or like China, that. or right, or China. Yes, absolutely. And and that's one of the things that I think you know. It, <laughs> Ben, I, I like both Ben and Tucker, and that to me in and of itself is interesting because, you know, I'm uh, not a, a fan of of many you know, genuine neoconservatives. And I feel like uh, Ben was uh, one of the, the few people on the right that was kind of humbled by his experience with, with Trumpism and didn't abandon different principles, but did think differently about certain things when it came to foreign policy. Um, obviously, Israel wasn't one of those things. The Trump administration, um, I, Ben was very favorable to what they did with the Abraham Accords, and the Trump administration wasn't much different on on Israel either. Uh, but that that argument, I think, the most charitable version of the, the Tucker argument uh, is that it's at, our attention to Israel comes at needlessly at the expense of our attention to to suffering in the United States, and that again, like that's the most charitable version of it. Um, so that, that's, again, the kind of a different conversation. Um, and that's a, a different sort of burden of proof. You know, what, what are we doing abroad that we could be doing home when, it, when it comes to attention, when it comes to money? Um, there's an argument there, but it's sort of different than what was happening in that exchange too.
3: Yeah. And then there's the, you know, very fraught, uh, Tucker has been accused of, you know, promoting the anti-Semitic trope that Shapiro has, like, dual loyalties, right? And, um, you know, Israel is (sighs) leads a lot of people to justify things that should not be justified. And I think it happens on a variety of levels. I think it's, number one, there's all this just legacy Cold War, and you see this in the age divide of, like, you know, there's the people, the countries that are on our side, and then there's the countries that are on the other side. And Israel's one of the countries on our side. Therefore, we should stand with them, period, end of story. So there's this like Cold War hangover. But then there is also this religious and identity-based affinity that isn't just among Jewish people. I mean, one of the strongest contingents, um, certainly on the Republican side of just like we're locked up with Israel, we'll never criticize them. Anything they do is inherently good and just actually is more like the Mike Johnsons of the world, who are hard right evangelical Christians who have this, you know, end times view and the of, you know, the Jews are the chosen people, and so we have to back them up number no, no matter what. And so, as with um, you know, the conflict between Israel and Palestine having being at its core a political and land dispute, but really having these overlays of um, religion, which make it even more difficult to untangle. Like we certainly have those same dynamics unfolding here as well. And it was an intentional project of multiple Israeli governments and officials to try to forge that bond um, from the early days of Zionism. And in America, it has been extremely, extremely successful. So that's part of what makes this makes it very difficult to have just like a policy-based or even just morality-based, okay, here's war crimes that are being committed, here's atrocities against civilians. Why this gets really tangled up is based on these other cultural, religious identity, affiliations, and uh, layer on top of that, this like Cold War hangover mentality. And a lot of things that are just...
5: Um, you know, it's it, it's hard to, it's much harder to convince the American public right now that uh, some of these familiar Cold War arguments and actually some of these familiar sort of post 9-11 arguments um, are, are worth putting back into uh, action after 9-11 without any sort of or or after the exit from Afghanistan, I should really say, the disastrous exit from Afghanistan without, uh, you know, much reconsideration fundamentally within uh, the Pentagon and the, the highest heights of American foreign policy elites of what American foreign policy should look like. And I think that's increasingly going to be a problem, actually, for Donald Trump going forward when he, he talks about what his plans would be uh, for the uh, Israel situation if he's elected president again less than a year from now, um, you know, w- what he would what he would do um, that would you know either continue what he did in his administration or maybe take a different tack from what he did in his administration. Remember, the Biden administration, uh, which a lot of people on the right felt undercut the Abraham Accords, was Publicly, like Jake Sullivan, a couple of weeks before October seventh, was talking about how there's a peace in the Middle East, like there hasn't been before, uh, basically on a, a continuation mm-hmm. of what had happened with the Abraham Accords. So um, I, I, there is just a, not just for the right, but kind of you know the blob versus anti-blob. There is a, a lot to be hashed out. Um, you know, in in the next, and, and it's kind of crazy to me, Crystal, that we're it's it's sort of like what we were talking about with Ukraine, but it's also you know Biden saying two state solution, Netanyahu who has the support of the U.S. government saying no two state solution. It's kind of crazy to me. We're talking about how this has to be hashed out, um, because we have basically a century of uh, some some major foreign policy failures in the rearview mirror uh, that we we just have never corrected. Essentially, yeah. even though the public is is pressuring for corrections, uh, the elites have 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 not responded to that pressure in significant ways.
3: And the legacy of those things looms large, you know, and it's the legacy of our failures and our ability to grapple with those failures and violations of our own stated principles are used. I, you know, uh, Putin talked about the, our invasion of Iraq as justification for his invasion of Ukraine. Um, Netanyahu talks about uh, not only our, you know war on terror and ISIS, but also talks about, hey, listen, you know, you all bombed the hell out of Dresden, so why can't we do it as well? So these things reverberate throughout history when we fail to grapple with them and when we so clearly um fall when we so clearly fail to live up to what we claim to stand for in the world, which again, as I said earlier, I don't think, uh, I don't think we will ever have any credibility to claim that we stand for international rule of law or any of these humanitarian principles that we supposedly built the world war two post-world war two order on. Um, In any case, was a joy as always, Emily, getting to chat with you today. Thank you for doing the show with me. Emily and Ryan are going to do normal counterpoints tomorrow, and then we're actually have Ryan in with me on Thursday for a full breaking point. So we're mixing it up this week, giving Sagar some very well deserved um, time off, and then he will be back next year. Next, not next year. We're already in next year. I mean, next week. <laughs> and I next week. Say, yeah, I'm, sure have, schedule.
5: Uh, I'm sure Sagar will have thoughts on this too when he uh, decides to stop uh, forcing me and Ryan to do his job. (laughs) <laughs> I'm kidding. No, it's, it's so much fun. I love mixing it up. Uh, it's a blast. Yeah, Ryan and I will be in studio uh, tomorrow, and I'm definitely looking forward to hearing you and Sager talk about uh, some of this as well. The Tucker interview has gotten a
3: huge response. Um, so yes. there's there's a lot to discuss going forward. The right and disarray, one of my favorite topics. All right, the guys. Republican, civil war, all Yes, cast. that's right. That's right. All right, guys. Thanks so much for hanging out with us today. Emily and Ryan, we'll see you tomorrow, and I'll see you Thursday. Have a good one
2: infinity presents a new chapter in luxury